Hello, this is Nathan Ray on Northology. Today is the 8th of March 2013. I'm here today at FYG in the Northern Quarter um, with today's guest, Ian Forrester. Hello. Yeah, so um, just before we start the interview and chat to Ian about what he's doing in Manchester, I just thought I'd give a bit of an update. Um, I've not really done an episode now for a couple of weeks, as two weeks ago it was half term, and I had five, uh, four kids to look after, uh, more than four at one point, because I had lots of friends around, and last week I was very di- busy editing the TED Liverpool conference for Herb King. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's quite a good, quite a good event. Anyway, so um, let's get down to the. Oh, one more thing I was going to mention was uh, last Friday I was asked to appear on BBC Breakfast in the morning as as my role um, as editor of Northology. Um, I'll drop the link to that to that appearance in the in the show notes, and um, so so you can see me there. But I was basically asked to comment on. Uh, the story where the boy in Bristol had run up £1,700 worth of um, uh, in-app purchases on an iPad game, a zombie game. Anyway, sounds like a good scam if you can get away with it, but uh, the, the app developer didn't get away with it. They had to give a refund. Anyway, I just talked about security and how to turn off in-app purchases on an iPad. I got to say about, was it four or five sentences on the BBC before they, they went back to talking to a, a barely um, literate five-year-old boy. Uh, but that's what happens in stories, isn't it? You said it's like a magazine program, human interest. Yes, very much. Um, anyway, so let's turn to our interview with um, Ian Forrest. Uh, Ian, uh, what are you doing in Manchester? Uh, so I moved to Manchester about uh, five years ago, I think it is. Um, and um, it's part of the BBC's move to Manchester. And I was number three to move to Manchester. So... Um, yeah, I've been in Manchester ever since, really. And um, what brought you here specifically? What was your role in the BBC, and why did why didn't you they just lay you off and tell you to get another job in in London? Um, no, because um, obviously my role was um, um, BBC backstage at a time, and so um, it was a nice outreach kind of role, and um, it made sense to. Um, to move to Manchester when I came up here and checked it out for a weekend, so that was that really. And what uh, and what made you change your mind and give up the London life and become the poster boy of the BBC? Not move to the north. I mean, literally the poster boy, weren't you? Um, actually, you know, I I basically came up because um, I I I will admit that when the first time I they, they talked about moving to Manchester, um, I said, oh. Uh no, who's gonna be? Actually, I, I'll I'll be honest. Um, I I said, um, who on earth would move to Manchester? And I I decided to check it out, see what it was like, and I came up for a weekend, and I think that was the weekend of um the first bar camp in Manchester, and I decided, oh, actually, there's some really interesting people here. It's an interesting scene. And I didn't know much about Manchester itself. Um, I actually knew more about Newcastle and, um, and Leeds through stuff like the Innovation Labs uh, before. So Manchester was a, a whole different scene for me. And um, I just decided there was enough interesting people, enough interesting things to do. Um, so let's make a move and, and um, go for it. And did you move up then before they'd even finished building the BBC Centre over in Salford? Or? Yeah, so I moved up. 
um, when it was um, so when we moved um, had to move to Oxford Road uh, which was also the BBC Centre for Manchester for a long time and um, with that yeah we're in this decrepit building I think it's been there for like 30 plus years and it felt like a... Uh, yeah, when they built that m- building, they actually built it with um, brown and dark coloured tiles. So it m- mixed in with the buildings around it because uh, uh, decades ago in Manchester, all the buildings were like a dark black-brown colour before they were all sandblasted and cleaned again. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah, so a few of the buildings in the city centre, the, the city planners said, oh, can you make your buildings brown so they fit in with the polluted buildings nearby? So anyway, that's why the BBC building was that disgusting colour uh, on uh, Oxford Road. It's gone now, though. It's just a big hole in the ground. Yeah, interestingly enough, actually. Um, so we were um, we when we first moved there, we were in this um, the front part of the the BBC Oxford Road, uh, but we got moved um, as more people came to the, the OB base, which is the um, something broadcast base, um, and that's that building actually still exists today. It's still there. Which is crazy when I walk past it. I'm like, why is the OB base still there? So, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, well, tell me a bit about what's this backstage uh, thing you're involved in then when you first moved up. Um, so, BBC Backstage was um, the BBC's um, attempt at open data. Um, when I say attempt, it was a really good attempt, um, but it was probably too early. Um, but we were. Um, giving away um, open data um, to people to remix and play with as developers um, way before uh, open data was cool and fashionable. Um, And it was a fantastic project. Um, People were already remixing the BBC already. Um, They were already doing stuff with our RSS fees that they weren't legally allowed to do. Um, But BBC Backstage gave it... um, you know, a license where they can actually go and do stuff and make stuff happen and then actually go, hey, look what I've built and, um, and hopefully take some of that stuff forward and into actual prototype and maybe even make it onto the BBC's um, website. And actually come, become a product that the BBC will then support going forward. Yeah, exactly. So um, one of the products that made it onto uh, the BBC was a thing called the Homepage Archive because it seemed crazy that the homepage changes so much and um, and then you know, kind of disappears and all that information is gone. So even the listings of where it, um, news stories appear and all that kind of stuff just disappears. Cause it, it changes so rapidly. And so someone decided, oh, it'd be really good if we could actually make that all into an archive so people can actually uh, go back through it and go, at this time, um, at 7 in the morning on September the 11th, uh, 2011, yeah, 2001, sorry, then, you know, let's see what the news story at, at the time was. So you can actually see, if you actually go back through it, you can see when... Um, yeah, when the, the the planes actually hit and see the stories that were um, were before that. So I think it was all the um, I can't remember what the stories were, but I know that the during the the seventh the seventh or um, 
yeah, when the bombs are happening in, in, in London. It was just after they announced the Olympics in London the day before. There was always stories about the Olympics and the joy of the city and stuff like that. And then suddenly, about I think it was about eight in the morning, um, then suddenly all the stories changed. Um, and it was, a, it was a kind of a brief period where everyone was talking about um, tube out. Um, the, the tube might have had some kind of problem with the electricity. And then suddenly it turned into bob alerts and stuff like that and then there, there might be gas explosions and this so can you can now can you go through and kind of replay that you know when they see the um these uh wikipedia battles which they visualize as you know as people jump in and edit and then re-edit and roll back and all this kind of thing can you go in and look at that data now um i don't remember what's happened to it i got a feeling that when the new homepage came into effect um the the prototype unfortunately broke um, which is a real shame. Um, so I'm not sure, but it, I mean, it probably exists somewhere uh, in some form. So, a game I play connected to that is um, if you look at the, if you go to the BBC News website, uh, a game I play is you click on any article, not a, not a not an opinion piece, a feature, but actually a um, a, a piece, and then on the second, it, on the, on the on the right hand side, it has the uh, there's similar stories, and you see how far back in time you can um, go um, on the related stories here. Um, so uh, you keep clicking back um, and and see how far back in time you can get. They've changed the layout slightly, but sometimes if you have a if you have an ongoing story, especially in the t technology um, or politics politics section, you can get right back to BBC homepage uh, like articles written. You know, like almost twenty years ago now, or whatever, and you know, like the original BBC homepage. It's all there. I mean, this is what the BBC is great at: is archiving all the all the content that they have. Yeah, I think um, the BBC is pretty good at that. I wouldn't say it's perfect. Um, there's better ways of archiving um, this material, and um, that was kind of got tested with um, with BBC Backstage. You know, people were recommended and you know actually doing prototypes to prove um that the, there are better ways of doing this which was um fascinating yeah and uh so that project wrapped up the bbc um that that backstage thing wrapped up then or did it did you did you drop the ball on that one what happened to it <laughs> oh god okay so it's a long story behind that and I, it's a long blog post that i need to post um bbc backstage um shut down um, because I shut it down. Um, the, the problem was, the main problem I saw was that um, it was produced in an era where, remember this is five years ago, this is, not five, this is like seven years ago. Seven years ago, um, people didn't even know what open data was. You know, they didn't even understand what was possible. You talk to people about open data and they would go, what, What's, what who cares, you know? They were just throwing data around, and it was like no big deal. Um, and so when we did that, the license was a non-commercial license. Yeah, the license is really important because it meant that no matter what you did, it was under a certain license. Um, unfortunately, um, as things moved on and progressed, well, not unfortunately, great things moved on, progressed, and and it meant that people didn't want to just make stuff for free they wanted to actually get paid so we originally started with um people who wanted to um 
to, to do a prototype and host it on their own servers. So who's paying for the hosting? They are. And if they get kind of like slash dotted or something like that at a time, slash dotted, you know. <laughs> that was a thing back then, was it? Exactly. Um, yeah, when it got slash dotted, then people would get kind of like, well, my hosted bill's gone through the roof, you know. Um, I need some help. And, you know, and we kind of go, okay, well, we agreed that it was okay to put some these Google adverts around the prototype. You know, at that time, that was like kind of quite radical. Now... Um, People expect to so if you if you release an app, then you would put it on the app store for like ninety nine p or something like that. You can't do that under a license, which meant that you know it meant that all the developers, all that hard work, um, was was um, a struggle because they were doing it for free in their own time and not really putting any effort into it. And some people still like the non commercial um, kind of aspect of backstage. But more and more developers were actually going, hey, I can get paid to do some of the stuff that I really want to do. So why would I do it for free for BBC? Well, I suppose that's fair, yeah. So, so after you wrap that up, or, or when you're wrapping that up, what were you moving into now? What's your role at the BBC now? <laughs> um, um, it's one of the hardest things is to explain what on earth I do at the BBC now. Um, so I always generally say um, I work for BBC R&D. And um, that involves looking at the future and picking things in the future and like doing research on them. Um, so that's kind of what I do. Um, I've, I right now have a focus on a thing called perceptive media, which is um, the kind of brainchild of some technology that I saw um, quite a while ago and in the backstage era actually. And um, and decided that there'd be some interesting, some interesting research um, problems that could be could come out of that. So that's kind of what I do right now. It's a lot of research. And you gave uh, you you mentioned this to me for a lot like six months before I actually saw you talk at a social media cafe. It was ex- I think it was social media cafe or whatever at the, at the corner house. And and when you showed the demonstration and finally I said, oh now now I get what Ian's been talking about for the last six months. So would you just explain that demo that you did. Oh God! So um, yeah, it's really hard because I mean, I I cannot even explain some of the background of where perceptive media came from. But um, the key thing was it was it's um, media which changes depending on um, your implicit actions. And when I say implicit, I mean um, not your. Well, it's, it's the opposite of explicit, which is. Explicit is when you type stuff on the keyboard or you... So that's kind of choose your own adventure. You decide to turn to a certain page or, or click on a certain link. Yes, exactly. So um, we used to have, the, me and the, 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 um, the head of R&D used to have these interesting rows um, about TV and the future of TV and stuff like that. And uh, his feeling was that TV is really important and people really like TV. and people, But people want to just sit back and just watch TV. I didn't want to interact with the TV. And um, I kind of disagree with him because I'm a very internet person. Um, and so out of that came this... Um, I, kind of, I started thinking, oh, actually, maybe he has a point. Is there a way that you can do the interaction without the user actually having to physically do anything? 
So they're so they come in, they have a really they've had a really bad day. They just want to sit back and just relax. Okay, so the TV knows that and will reflect that in its program choices. The key thing about perceptive media is that it's not just the program choices, as in, you know, like half an hour chunks. Could you change the bits of the program to 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 uh, reflect, um, you know, the mood of the person? Um, and that was where the that's that's kind of the object part of perceptive media. And then the example that you gave at Social Media Cafe, you had somebody write a, a, a story of a, I think it's like an agoraphobic young girl getting in a lift, was it? And, um, and, and But the lift starts talking to the girl. And, and as she's traveling up and down in the lift trying to decide if she's going to get out or not, it brings in the weather outside, which it knows through your location, uh, l- recent news stories that are happening. Um, I think altogether there's like six or seven different bits of new media or different choices that it made depending on where, where your computer was and what time you were watching it. Yeah, so what we've done is um, in in, the, in that play called Break It Out, um, we basically used the computer um, for uh, APIs as sensors. And the sensors are your, your location, that's the biggest one. Um, yeah, the weather. And once you've got the location, you can work out the weather. You can work out um, other bits and pieces. Um, but we also do some clever little bits and pieces, like um, we sniff to see what social networks they've been on. Um, and so we can put that into a story. Because if you imagine, most stories, or I think of stories as um, variables. And the variables are all changeable. Um, it's just that in the in the last hundred years, we kind of got used to broadcast. And broadcast says you send the exact same story to everyone, no matter where they are. And that doesn't make sense in my head because if you are, you know, you're having a really bad day, you know, you may not want to hear a story about how, you know, um, someone's having a really bad day on TV. You know, it just makes you even more depressed. So, you know, it could change. It could say, okay, you're having a bad day. I'm going to show you something that makes you a little bit more happy a little bit more less suicidal you know um so this could really change things and it's like um and and so yeah it just kind of came from that really you know um but the play um will use your location um the time the dates social networks um and a bunch of other little bits and pieces um and then it will the key thing about it is that it doesn't change a play it changes parts of the play because the play is delivered like a someone actually gave me this example the other day it's like a web page web page is made up of many different assets these little objects and they make up the whole page and we're delivering um the play as these little assets little objects and we can manipulate which what the objects do when they played how long they're played for that kind of thing so in that play um, we're using um, an actress voice who's actually recorded and that's broken into little pieces but not on t- not only that we're also uh, evoking um, the an audio API to um, to to do the lift voice so because the lift voice is generated on the fly we can get the lift to say anything anything we like so the lift can talk about Salford because we're in Salford right now. Well, we're in Manchester, sorry. Yeah, um, usually I listen to it as Salford. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's, it's, we can just get it to say anything we like, but we can also change when it says things. So we can delay things, we can speed things up, you know, all that kind of stuff. And actually, interestingly, all people always have a different take on what happens um, because um, we thought when, we, when the play got written, it might be that the lift, the lift voice, it may actually be the the the, the woman's kind of subconscious talking to herself, but some people say it. Some people say that. Some people say it's the lift. Some people say it's it's like it's not quite clear which one it is deliberately. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I was teaching at university this week. Um, I teach on the filmmaking course at Man Met. Uh, I know you know that. I'm just saying that for the listeners. Um, and we're t- we're talking about narrative structure and the way you can. Uh, the way kind of narrative elements go into a story, but the structure can change. And um, although I was talking about films, and this is your experiment was audio based, um, do you think that the you can change the elements in the narrative? But do you think the narrative structure or anything could change um, in the in the future? Yeah, so absolutely. This is the key thing, right? We can change anything. Um, we can change the the narrative structure. We can do the whole branch and narrative thing but we decided not to because it's been done to death um i was talking to a guy um and i can't remember his name um who did um a play in plymouth and he um basically you're in a cinema and you're wearing these these sensors um and depending on the the kind of the general heartbeat or or the um, or other aspects of what people in the cinema felt, it would choose a certain path through the film. Uh, we can do that easily, um, but we wanted to show an example that um, filmmakers and filmmakers, well, uh, storytellers could could understand really clearly. And the thing about it is, is that everyone thinks this is really alien in some way and actually it's not it's yeah this is how we used to tell stories we never used to when we used to tell stories we used to like stand up tell the story and look at the people around us look in their eyes look at the way they're sit the sitting and kind of you know range the story around them and what they're doing or you know that kind of thing so it's all natural it's all human it's just that we're using the internet and you know new media to to, to do that, you know. So it's not that that weird. <laughs> yeah, it just reminds me of going from a a book on tape back to a bedtime story where you're actually telling the the bedtime story. We do ones with our children, Flopsy and Mopsy and Cottontail stories, uh, but they're not they're not Beatrice Potter style. They go on adventures and into the future and into fantasy worlds and all kind of things. And last night, Shona was telling our little girl a, a story. And she said she wanted a mermaid in it, so Shona put a mermaid, but it was a mermaid statue. And she burst into tears because she wanted it to be a real mermaid. And then like a minute later, somebody did some magic and the mermaid came to life. And 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 Saren was just amazed that that's the way the story, that's the direction the story took. And Shona said afterwards, it's almost like she didn't realise I was just making it up as I was going along. Kind of thing. So what I would like to do though is, um, you know these cameras, which uh, there's 360, 360 degree cameras? Um, so they film 360 degrees. I would like to write a narrative where it starts facing forward and there's characters, two characters interacting. But then one character can walk off to the left and one character can get right. And depending on who you follow, depending on which way you pan the camera, it either follows the 
one character or another character and until they've gone all the way around and kind of meet the other side of the camera. Oh, well, like the other side of the, the space. And then you can see the interactions that they've had. Obviously, you only hear what's in front of you. So depending on which way you look in this 360 degree environment, you get a different storyline depending on depending on which way you go. Kind of like, I've kind of written a script in my head about how to make it work. All I need now is somebody to give me a, a very, very expensive camera and, uh, and a chunk of money to do it. So uh, not quite... That's explicit, obviously, you explicitly choosing which way to go there, not implicit, but similar type of thing. I, I, so um, there's a bunch of projects that we're working on um, following on from um, Breaking Out, and there's something a bit like that that's an opportunity um, using a thing called Fascinate, and Fascinate will record um, basically a 16K... 60 no 8k um image and when you've got such a high resolution image you can carve out sections and if you imagine you could carve out sections which make sense depending on the the gaze of the user yeah that makes sense just how do you get that 8k image to where you want it to go that's the next problem isn't it yeah to actually um the fascinating project um actually has that sorted already so it's kind of built into flash you can zoom in and zoom out of a certain bit of the image or something not maybe not flash but you know it's that kind of widget that that you're looking at watching it through yeah i mean so um fascinate um is a european project and has um a load of really interesting research um on how to do that for broadcast and how to how it could really work and the the question they're always saying it's like so the, the example they always have is um they have a football match and you're watching the football match most people are just interested in the the ball and what's happening on the ball but you can watch the the manager or the coach or you can watch the goalkeepers and stuff like that and um, but you have to go and select them and go and view them where what we're suggesting is um why can you not do that with um your gaze that's all I'm going to reveal. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting, yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure that's the way the sport sport thing's going. I know I just saw today that uh, they're starting to put head-mounted cams on the referees in certain um, football matches and boxing matches and rugby. So um, you basically get the ref cam. You can see what the ref can see and um, while he's on the pitch. And it's yet it's a yet another angle that the producer or the director can cut to. Or you can choose to watch if you if you want to. Um, which I think is great. Anyway, mo- moving on from that, what you you said you come to Manchester and like the um, like the crowd here. What what kind of things are you involved in apart from your work? Uh, what groups and things do you get involved in? Um, so when I moved to Manchester, um, I to, it's really weird because like I kind of moved from um, I actually I'm originally from Bristol, and I moved to London, and I moved from London to to Manchester. So I'm kind of done the whole moving quite a few times and have to you know build new f- new friendships and um new relationships and stuff like that quite a lot um and one of the things i did when i was in um london was i got really popular for um doing i, I did i kind of started geek dinners which was um a kind of it wasn't monthly it was just a whenever a good guest comes through London, we would grab them and talk them to to 
to do this kind of um, this dinner um, in front of a bunch of geeks. And it was really cool and that got really popular. Um, then I got involved in um, bar camp. So um, I did the first bar camp in the UK, um, in London, at Yahoo. And then the second and third one. Um, and then um, also on top of that, we, through Backstage, started doing um, these hack days and um, got deeply involved in that as well. And so I kind of done quite a bunch of things. Um, but when I moved here, um, I did, I was conscious I didn't want to just bring the same stuff over. I wanted to um, to kind of like see what was available, what was around what's the kind of where the industry was going and stuff like that and then kind of like put my kind of foot from there um so the closest thing i could find to um to geek dinners was um social media cafe uh which is now called smc mcr um it's very catchy um which is actually the funny thing about social media cafe uh, i gotta give i gotta say this one social media cafe is based on the London Tuttle Club, and the Tuttle Club, which is run by Lloyd Davis, is a copy of well, not copy, sorry, sorry, Lloyd, who's <laughs> listening, um, is actually um, a follow-on of what Geek Dinners was. So actually, it all comes back to Geek Dinners, which is bizarre. But I mean, yeah, it, it's things have moved on, which is good. Um, so I've kind of got involved in Social Media Cafe. Um, which is which is cool, um, but I'm also doing uh, werewolf nights. Um, I did the second bar camp in Manchester because uh, one of the things that really annoy people, and I'm sorry to everyone, I'm going to apologise to everyone on on air as such, is um, I went to the first bar camp in Manchester, and it was one day, and it was like from like nine till six, and and I just felt like this is not a bar camp, and maybe I was a little bit too rude there in the way I the way I kind of expressed it. And um, so I, I I took it upon myself to do the second bar camp and make it a two dayer an overnight, um, and that took a lot of effort, but it happened and it went really well. Um, I, unfortunately, um, I then later on decided to do. Um, bar camp media city which went really well except for the overnight beer um which i'll be sorry to everyone again um so i i understand it's very hard but i kind of got involved in the bar camp thing and i'm actually going to run a bar camp uh, with the universities um at some point in september so uh, look out for that so yeah the bar camp's still high on my agenda a little bit um i'm also um um I'm also kind of interested in doing smaller scale things um, with more intimate um, kind of um, settings. So uh, I've used, I've been well known and I'll criticise for doing um, Geeks Talk Sexy, um, and which then became Geeky and Sexy, and which then became Relationships 2.0. Um, which I actually did in this space, uh, FYG, um, and I, I think it was still. It's maybe 
I was pushing it a little bit, but I think it actually is still an interesting subject because there's lots of lots of things, especially right now. There's lots of interest between um, online dating and um, and the real world. There's this whole catfish thing, which is quite interesting, and you know, kind of like a lot of new people coming to online dating who normally wouldn't come to online dating, and um, they're starting to struggle with some of the some of the things within online dating and it's really interesting to just dis- discuss this stuff out in the open and go well you know what happens if this person doesn't want to meet me you know after six months of talking to them maybe he's that person's a catfish you know you don't never know so it's all that kind of stuff and um and i, I think that it's it's different but i what i like what one of the things i liked about manchester is manchester's um really a place where you can do different stuff and um it doesn't need to be well formed it just needs to be different and interesting and i felt that that's that still stands um and it, you know stuff like um mad lab um i was talking to some guys in in um, london and they want to basically they discussed that they wanted to do have a space and i was like oh so a bit like Mad Lab, and they were like, I was explaining what Mad Lab was, and they were like, yeah, like that, because they felt like Tech Hub was too startup-focused, and um, so the other places, the co-workers are so a bit too loose. They want something a little bit more where you can like have community events and um, community-type um, affairs happen. And I was like, Mad Lab, you know, and they were like, oh, so they're really interested in setting up a Mad Lab in London. And that, that, that strikes me, this is reason why i moved to manchester because i i read a um, a quote ages ago saying what manchester does today london does tomorrow you know um maybe at scale but it's this manchester is a great place to do the stuff that um you wouldn't be able to get away with anywhere else and you know i think that's still true okay excellent thank you very much ian for for that um I know you did the dating things basically as your way to make new girls, wasn't it? Uh, you know, Facebook uh, Zuckerberg make da- Zuckerberg makes Facebook to to meet girls. You 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 run the 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 the, the couple thing so to meet girls. Is that right? No, it's not. I, I honestly no. Honestly, I you know what? I I'm, I have a, I mean I, I know it's kind of like quite a light-hearted show, but I'll I will I'll say it that basically okay. So when I moved, first moved to Manchester, it was hard to meet people. That's very true, but. Um, there's something really interesting about the fact that we never really talk about relationships, well, um, especially guys don't talk about relationships in an open way. Um, they'll kind of like, it's, there's a lot of ego involved. And so they don't tell them, their friends what they're really, um, really thinking. And women are, are more likely to talk about relationships in a more open way, um, but it's a little bit different. And so just to, to have that kind of open space where you can talk about this stuff, um, I think it was really good. And, um, you know, being for someone who's who's been divorced, um, it's really good to just be open and just discuss this stuff. They, they, you know, maybe it might even save someone's relationship. And, and that's the honest truth. That's the reason why I did it. Not because I wanted to meet girls, you know. I know. I always try and throw a few um, questions in to, to my guests to, to get them going. That was that was your one, uh, I suppose. Okay. Uh, well, just uh, moving on there. Just 
thank you. Like I say, thank you for thank you for that interview. It was very good. We'll just um, quickly take a look at the, uh, the the some other announcements. Just to let you know that TechBritain.com is now um, up and running. TechBritain.com is a website run by Sean and a couple of guys, um, Sean and Doug, um, from over at Tech Hub Manchester. Get onto it. Get onto there and um, add your company there or add your organisation. It's a really quite good map that you can zoom in and out of through from the whole country. Uh, I think it's based on Google, that definitely, isn't it? Um, but it's it's really well uh, done. It's running a little bit slow. That might be my um, connection, or it might just be Alistair's uh, code is uh, it's not quite up to scratch yet. Anyway, thank you, Alistair and the guys uh, uh, from Tech Britain for doing that. Like I say, get on there, add your organisation, add your company, add your startup onto the Tech Britain map. Um, now getting to the most important part of the podcast, this week in Manchester. <laughs> Okay, you're going to help me do this bit? I'll try. Okay, so today there's the uh, uh, co-working space um, at Mad Lab. Only by the time this podcast comes out, you'll have missed it. And the, tonight we've got Tech Face and Beers. It's at Tech Hub Manchester tonight. Um, we've got a ping pong tournament, table tennis tournament going on with beers at um, at Tech Hub tonight. So... Isn't it? Isn't it weird that every um, every startup, <laughs> sorry, every startup always wants a ping pong table? But anyway, talk about tomorrow. That's do you do you know that the, the, they tried to get the ping pong table ready for the launch of Tech Hub for the um, for the Hack Manchester event? They drove halfway across the country to get that um, table tennis table. It was uh, uh, unreal. Yes. So go on then. Ten a.m. tomorrow. So ten a.m. tomorrow we got um, March of the Droids at Mad Lab. Yep, and then on Monday the 11th we've got the 3D printer user group at Mad Lab. Again, that's at, uh, that's at 7 p.m. There's also a poetry writing workshop, but I won't mention this because it's a tech podcast. Um, then we have the uh, on Tuesday the 12th we have open badges at Mad Lab at 3 p.m. Uh, Wednesday the 13th of March it's the um, at Mad Lab we've got the Manchester Women's Design Group at 6.30 then at 6.45 um, uh, at ThoughtWorks that's it, on, uh, in Piccadilly we've got the Fishbowl on Test Suite Fishbowl on Test Suite um, check out that event it, look, it looks quite interesting on Thursday the 14th we've got XP Manchester at Mad Lab at 6.30 um, and what's happening next Friday? Next Friday we have um uh, Madco um, at Mad Lab, uh, co-working space, um, and then we have Tech Basin beers again. Um, hopefully not with the uh, ping pong this time. Um, and then we have iOS Manchester at Mad Lab. Uh, obviously, I won't be there. <laughs> um, and an introduction to Ruby Motion. Um, well, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, Mad Lab again. See, Mad Lab's such a great space. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, any more um, any more events that you that that aren't on the Northology calendar, um, shoot my way. You can contact me. I'm Nathan at Northology.com, or you can contact me on Twitter. I'm at Nathan Ray on Twitter. Um, yeah. So, if you've got any news that you want me to put on the calendar or mention next week on next week's podcast, or or any positions of opening in your company that you want me to advertise, um, just let me know. We're running quite a bit long this week it's your fault Ian uh, Ian if people want to know a bit more about you where can they find 
ounce. Um, the easiest way of finding out about me is just to type in cubicgarden.com and there's my blog and links to all my social media type things. Or just do a search for Cubic Garden and you'll get my Twitter and my Facebook because I'm a very open person. Yeah, so that's uh, Cubic Garden on Twitter. Okay, we're coming up to the 40-minute mark now, so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up and, uh, and leave it there. Thank you very much again, Ian. Thank you very much. And until next time, uh, this is Nathan Ray from Northology.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.